Let's pray. Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth and it endures. And so, O Lord, we pray that you would establish your word in us this day. Would your word uh, endure in us and um, be passed down through every generation. Uh, so speak to us today and by your spirit uh, would, it, would it last and bear fruit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, our eldest daughter, Zanna, was uh, practicing her reading with me, and um, she was reading a children's paraphrase of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. And she didn't know the story, and so she was understandably confused when she got to the last chapter, uh, because at the end of the book, the main characters tragically die as a result of their family's long standing feud. I hope that's not a spoiler. It was, um, <laughs> it was written at the end of the 16th century. But it wasn't the fairy tale that she was expecting. Romeo and Juliet didn't live happily ever after. And so she turned to me and said, Daddy, is there another end to the story? There must be. As much as I'd love to keep and protect my daughters from the evils and the sadnesses of this world, those things inevitably break in on us. They pierce us. Injustice, greed, hypocrisy, those things mark our families, our communities, and our wider society. From playgrounds to parliament, there is deceit and inequality. In Shakespeare's words, Fair is foul, and foul is fair. So the question is, how do we live by faith and in righteousness in that sort of world? Why should we even? Why bother? What's the point if oppression is rewarded and injustice is ignored? How would my ordinary little life and our ordinary little church make any difference at all? Well, let's return to our journey with the teacher and explore that together. And so first, this is what we see. Uh, living by faith in a world of injustice. We finished um, <clears throat> excuse me, our time last week seeing how the seasons and the, the patterns of this world beat on regardless. As creatures, we are not in charge of time. And yet as creator... God is not governed by time, he governs it. And so whatever he does lasts and endures. And that should be a comfort to God's people because there is no time or season, however difficult it, it may seem, that is beyond his reach. And the same is true of injustice. There is no act beyond God's sight. So reading from verse, uh, well, chapter 3, verse 15, uh, 15 again. Whatever is has been already, and whatever will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked. 
for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. Just on Wednesday and Thursday this week, I was at a gathering of evangelical leaders from across the Church of England, and we were blessed to be ministered to by a bishop from Southeast Asia. And it was humbling to hear how Anglicans in, in the non-Western world um, do not despise the heritage of missions that went out from places like England uh, to the farthest corners of the globe. They don't despise it. They're, they're thankful for it. But it was even more humbling to realize that we, in England, are now the ones who need to receive their ministry. Because the church in many parts of the world today is growing and thriving. It's full of life and health. The gospel is being proclaimed and the church is doing good. But the church in the West is another matter. It's on the edge, seemingly, of giving in to the spirit of the age or standing firm but becoming a minority group. That's what our bishop friend told us. And departing from uh, the faith in Holy Scripture, passed down through all those generations, generations by generations, giving in to the spirit of the age is not an option. That's a sure path to self-destruction. And so, said the bishop with a kind smile, we need to be prepared to be despised. But, friends, no act of oppression is beyond God's reach. Should we suffer like our brothers and sisters throughout the world, that is not outside of God's mysterious purposes. Just as the darkness of the death of Jesus Christ brings light and life to us, so our suffering, whatever it is, is not in vain. We heard those wonderful words from verse 11 last week, chapter 3, verse 11. God makes everything beautiful in its time. No act of injustice or suffering, small or big, is beyond God's reach. And no force or, or power under the sun will endure. In that sense, people are no different to animals, unable to put off what we're destined for. In the end, death. So injustice will not last. Injustice is not eternal. And that perspective is part of what it looks like to live by faith in a world full of injustice. You don't need me to give examples of it. It's everywhere. When faced with hostile powers against us, remembering that in the end, those powers will be rendered powerless by the God who has the power to give life and to take it away helps us to live by faith. Living by faith in a world of injustice. Second, living by faith in a world without love. Now, because of mask wearing in recent times, I, I've noticed recently that I use a lot more unspoken gestures uh, to express my feelings to others. So when I say thanks in the shops, I often go away with a big thumbs up or I shake my head vigorously to say no. Uh, most awkwardly of all, um, I do that dance that lots of people do when you're greeting, like, do I shake hands and fist bump? And, uh, no. Uh, and, and I lean in or stand apart. 
Well, our, our gestures and our body posture communicate a great deal about how we're feeling and, and what we think. Um, I won't tell you what you look like now. But in chapter 4, the teacher uses the images, uh, the image rather, of our hands to illustrate the inner posture of our hearts. So just look at verse 4 again in chapter 4. And I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. There are three sets of hands here. First, there's an image of grabbing hands. The two handfuls image is an illustration of those trying to, to grip onto life under the sun. It's a picture of self-focus, self-gain, self-preservation, of trying to secure as much as possible, even at the expense of others. I was at school, there was once a, a vending machine that malfunctioned, and so all the chocolate bars and crisps and sweets and drinks came out of the machine for free. As you can imagine, there was a huge scrum of teenagers, which to my shame included me, batting one another's hands out of the way, trying to grab what they could. And since the fall, that's the attitude we've all inherited. That instinct has come from Adam, of wanting and trying to take hold of what doesn't belong to us, now at least. We all know the damage that internet or telephone scammers can do to vulnerable people. But that is exactly what we do to others when out of envy we take what is theirs. Not just in terms of wealth and possessions, which we'll come back to next week. We can grab at people's reputations by slandering them. We can grab at their responsibilities by undermining them. We can grab at their joy by shunning them. Grabbing hands is a picture of loveless hearts, of self-loving hearts, perhaps, grabbing things for self. And as we've seen throughout the book, that approach will ultimately leave us with nothing in our hands. Because chasing after things under the sun is a chasing after the wind. The smoke escapes through our fingertips. Second, folded hands. Folded hands, of course, can't grab, but neither can they give. So folded hands are not a picture of faith. And folded hands are not a picture of love. They're a picture of idleness. They're a picture of inactivity, of apathy. People with the spiritual posture of folded hands neither raise their hands in prayer, which is a biblical image for, for praying to God, nor extend their hands to others. They're folded in on themselves. And if God doesn't give them what they want and other people don't recognize and serve them, they sulk and lose interest. During COVID, we've been forced to retreat to the comfort of our homes, sometimes at the expense of 
of gathering together to, to worship and to pray. But in this next season, we might physically be present again, uh, together here, wonderfully. Um, but where, where are our hearts? Are they still at home, perhaps, in retreat? If so, what effects will that have on the church? Real faith is expressed by love, love for God and love for a neighbor. Otherwise, says the Apostle Paul, our faith is shown to be dead. So that's grasping hands, grabbing hands rather, folded hands. And then there's the one-handed grip. Uh, so verse 5 again, the fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and a chasing after the wind. Uh, Gordon Keddy, a, a Scottish pastor and writer, um, explains this imagery rather beautifully, and so I thought I'd read it, and I put it up on the, on the slide. He says, this beautiful expression is presented as a middle way between two-fisted grabbing and hand-folded laziness, but it is far more than a balance between two extremes. It is a radical alternative to two essentially sinful positions. The idea is of a modest and contented life in which one hand is put forward effectively and successfully, but garners tranquility in the process. But what is the other hand doing? The Bible says that the basic fact of life of the Lord's disciple is that they are always with their Lord who holds them by the right hand. The condition of a happy balance in life is that of the right hand signifying our primary motive, be in the hand of our Father God, while the left hand is put forth in fruitful and satisfying labor in commitment to the revealed purposes of God. Isn't that just a wonderful image? We are always held by the hand of God. We are always accompanied by him. And so, by faith, we can let go of our grasping hands, grasping after life under the sun. And in doing so, we avail ourselves to the peace the Lord gives by his care. You know, even if everything else slips through our fingers in this life, we are still held by the hand of God. And knowing that, adapting that posture of a one-handed grip on life under the sun, you know, it also enables us to see um, and, and frees us up to love and to serve others. So the teacher goes on, chapter 4, verse 9, two are better than one because they have good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. This passage is often um, preached at weddings for good reason. It's, it's a picture of other person-centered love and the security and the fruitfulness that that brings. But you know, it doesn't only speak of marriage relationships. Because here, 
the image of lying down together is, is not sexual. In days gone by, um, a group of soldiers, for example, would sleep closely together to keep warm so that they'd be ready for battle. And as Christians, bound together by Christ, the most obvious expression of this picture, I think, is the church. The Lord has given us one another for our mutual strengthening. And we're unlikely to be fruitful in our discipleship, evangelism, or other ministries and activities if we work as individuals with grabbing hands, making it about me, or thinking only I can do this. You know, activism is a real danger um, in the church. It's not the answer. Doing lots of stuff um, might make me look important, but it's centered on me sometimes, often. Or if we fold up our hands and elect not to accompany our faith with love, we're unlikely to be few, uh, fruitful. And so, can I ask, which of these two postures of, of grabbing hands or folded hands are you most in danger of slipping into at the moment? Either way, the remedy is in our third and final part. Living by faith in an awesome God. Chapter 5, verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. As we've been reminded many, many times in recent days, God is supremely good. He is the fount of all blessing. God is himself love. And our experience of, of love, whatever love we experience in this life, is only a pale reflection of the love that God is in himself, the love that extends to us, the creatures he made, and the children he redeemed. Yet, God's goodness and love is not in opposition to his holiness and his majesty. And part of drawing near to God by faith and with joy, in confidence that he receives us gladly in Christ, is acknowledging that God is not our instrument. God cannot be used by us. We add nothing to him. God doesn't need our gifts. On the contrary, it is we who receive everything from him. He created us. He preserves us. He redeems us. He adopts us. He brings us into participation in his life. He himself is the wisdom, meaning, purpose, and goal of life. That's why we need to look above the sun, seeing into the hidden realities of heaven to live beneath it. And grasping something of that ought to render us utterly speechless. That's what it really means to be still and to know that I am God, Psalm 46. Because what can we say? Guard your steps 
when you go to the house of God. No doubt Solomon or whoever the teacher is had the temple in mind when writing this. Um, in Israel's history, the, the place where God manifested his presence in the most palpable way was in the temple. We see that, for example, in 2 Chronicles 7. There we read how when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and they gave thanks to the Lord saying, he is good. His love endures forever. If that is how the Israelites responded to the manifestation of God's presence and glory through the sign of fire, what is our response to the very Son coming among us? Or to his word proclaimed to us? Or to the spirits inhabiting of us, his people? The fact is, God has revealed more to us, given, giving us even more reason to stand in awe of God. Is God in your hands, or are you in his? Is he to serve you, or are you to worship him? The world is not the fairy tale we think we need. Life can feel so meaningless and, and messed up sometimes. Fair is foul and foul is fair. But God does not change. His majesty and brightness has not dimmed. He himself is in our midst. And he will hold and keep us through the most desperate times and in the darkest of places. Jesus said, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so as we close, can I invite you, if you're able to, uh, to please stand. <clears throat> I'm going to read Psalm 46, which I mentioned a few moments ago. And then we're going to stand in silence for a few moments, allowing these words to, to wash over us. Psalm 46, for the director of music, of the sons of Korah, according to the Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. 
He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Take your seats, please. 